Verse 17. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside. Jesus took the twelve aside to privately relay to them an all-important truth, to prepare them for what is about to come to pass over this next week in Jerusalem. Now, if you've been tracking along with us over the last few chapters, you might hope that after Christ's repeated teachings, after his numerous repetitions of this kingdom truth, after his tireless and unflagging reiteration of this kingdom reality that we learned back in chapter 18, verse 3, that unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of, he of God, of heaven. See, Jesus frequently dwelt upon and persistently restated this critical and consequential fact that his disciples, all of them, all of us, must be humble. And the reason that Christ continually comes back to this particular subject is because the twelve so regularly engaged in arguments and debates with each other so regularly and frequently engaged in squabbles focused on establishing and deciding an order of priority among themselves, an order of precedence among themselves. It's also, Jesus continually reiterates it, because it is one of the great wars that we wage in our own lives. As our flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit of God in us, the Spirit of God in us wants humility, it wants to be a childlike disciple of the Lord. The Spirit in us wants to be like Jesus more than anything else. But the flesh that wages war against our spirit doesn't want that at all. And the good that we want, which is humility, oftentimes gives way to the pride that we don't want. <clears throat> the evil of self-exaltation tends to be our practice and I can feel it with the Apostle Paul, right? Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And these disciples, they constantly quarreled with each other as they sought to determine among themselves an order of importance in the kingdom of heaven. Had they all been striving for greatness through serving one another, perhaps that might not have been such a big problem. But none of them, up to this point, has volunteered for any sort of service. None of them have said, you know what, I'm going to take, I'm going to sign up for line 12 out of 12. No, every single one of them wanted the prime spot. They wanted to put their name on line number one. And they were willing to bicker with each other. They were willing to put themselves forward as most deserving for the designation of first in the kingdom of heaven. Obviously, when 12 proud men lock horns in, battle for in a battle for supremacy, no one is going to relent, right? And so they brought the question directly to Jesus so that he might settle it once and for all back in chapter 18, verse 1. They brought this question to him. Look at it. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? What they really want to know is, Jesus, which one of us? Which one of us is the greatest? And you can all imagine them standing there in front of Jesus waiting for him to point his finger at one of them. You can all imagine them standing there with their arms crossed, each rehearsing their own resume 
of sacrifices and achievements over and against everyone else and expecting Jesus to say, you, you're the preeminent one in the kingdom. But instead, what did Jesus do? He called to himself a little child. He placed that child in the midst of the disciples A child. Now you remember, right? A child in the Roman Empire had no status, no delusions of grandeur. A child represented the lowest rungs of the social ladder in Rome. And this is key. Children were economically dependent. They were dependent on other people for everything. Now just as an aside, again, as we've already said, Christ is not calling on the disciples to be childish. He's not calling on them to keep from growing in their most holy faith in both knowledge and obedience. No, Christ called on the disciples, and uh, by extension, us as well, to see and to think of ourselves in in the same manner as this child in the Roman Empire. Those who represent, those who live on the lowest levels of the social order. The call of Christ to the disciples here, the call of Christ to us here, is that we lay down all claims to self, And we see it in his words in chapter 16, verse 24, when he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. See, Jesus called on his disciples to sacrifice all claims of status, all claims to greatness, and instead live as those with no misconceptions about our status and our position before the Lord or our status and our position among the people of God. We, his childlike disciples, pick up the mantle of service. We serve the servants in the household of God without complaint, without grumbling, without self-ambition, without demands for recognition, preeminence, higher rank, greater appreciation or adoration from those around us. The call of Christ is, and listen to me, to simply serve one another in his name with no concern for the advancement of our own selves. The call of Christ is to simply serve one another in His name with no concern for the advancement of our own selves. We commit ourselves to aiding and helping our fellow believers on their road and on their path to ever-increasing Christ-likeness. We are concerned to protect our fellow believer over and above our supposed greatness. And so Jesus, as he often did, made this crystal clear in 18 verse 4, announcing this kingdom truth. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. See, the twelve wanted him to point finger at one of them, point the finger at one of them. He said, no, 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 that's not how it works. Whoever wishes to be great in the kingdom must humble themselves like this child. And the entirety of chapter 18 forms one long, unbroken discourse or teaching block in which Jesus explains in practical detail the form that this humility must take among us, his people. Jesus described for the twelve what humble greatness really does look like. It encompasses such things as doing everything in our power without sinning ourselves to keep from being an enticement to or a cause for sin and stumbling in a fellow believer's life. We read that in chapter 18, verses 5 to 7. See, you and I must be very careful. We live in a society that just loves to spout our opinions about everything all the time to everyone who, and anyone who will listen. 
But we must be, as the children of God, very careful not to foist or bind or loose others according to our opinions on anything. We must be very careful with our words and our advice, ensuring that everything we say to guide another or to counsel another or to recommend a course of action for another stands upon the only reliable foundation. And the only reliable foundation is not what's going on in your mind, but it is the very Word of God itself. We don't give others advice based on the news broadcast that we listened to before we met them that day. We don't give advice based on the flow of world events or the current expression of political strife in our world. No, it's the Word of God alone. The humble, childlike believer will also recognize and take seriously the necessity of their own holiness, of your own holiness, of my own holiness, in character and in conduct. Do not underestimate the benefit of holy, devoted, obedient followers of Christ to a church body. The fellowship does not need to know all of your thoughts or all of my thoughts and opinions on every subject. What the church needs is the holiness of each individual disciple therein. Your holiness, your obedience, your connection to an example of joyful service to Christ is of more importance and value to the church than your opinions are. Humble disciples will also make the protection of sheep who have been deceived by the world, the protection of sheep who are at risk of being deceived by the world, the protection of sheep who go out into the world because the world has conducted them out in that way, who've been led astray or enticed by the world, the church will make it a priority to protect and to seek them out in hopes of their return to the fold of Christ, as we read in chapter 18, verses 12 to 14. Humble disciples will be those who, in love and for the purpose of reconciliation, not retribution, not the satisfaction of your flesh, but reconciliation will confront and, if necessary, discipline and excommunicate the unrepentant sinner, as we read in Matthew 18, 15 to 20. The humble disciple who would be great in the kingdom will be a forgiving person, as we read in 18, 21 to 35. Humble disciples will be people of unrelenting commitment, steadfast, reflecting the steadfast, loyal love in all of our relationships. And Jesus makes it most specifically clear in our marriages. Rather than simply divorcing somebody because they do not see us, or they do not do as we wish, or because maybe they don't do things the way we would like them to do, or we've lost some sort of the flame that we once had for them, or they no longer please us as they once did, Jesus said, what, man has, what God has joined together, man must not separate. God is a God of loyal, steadfast love, and so should his humble, childlike disciples be. Humble disciples will also seek the Lord with the entirety of our hearts, sacrificing and laying down anything that might impede our loving the Lord God with all of our heart, all of our strength, all of our mind, and all of our soul, according to Matthew 20, verses 16 to 30. And then as we saw last week, humble childlike disciples will labor in the vineyard of the Lord without begrudging the generosity of the Lord to others that we might think haven't worked as hard as us or they don't know as much as us or they haven't labored and sweat and toiled for the Lord as much as we have. 
these three full chapters. In these three full chapters, we see numerous situations, several diverse ways, all of which speak to this same underlying issue. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And now after all these teaching moments, after this repeated and relentless call to humility among the disciples, Jesus, for the third time in Matthew's gospel, announces to the twelve the humble path that he as Messiah, that he as the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the world, must tread. As we read it in chapter 20, verses 7 to 19, look at it again. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. So Jesus has already announced this, his imminent death to the twelve, twice. Twice directly, but he's also announced it to the scribes and the Pharisees once indirectly. Way back in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, Jesus said to the religious leaders, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. An indirect prophetic word about his imminent death. And more directly, And clearly, he stated it to the disciples in chapter 16, verse 21, for the first time when he said, from that time, or when it says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. But at the first, when Jesus first announced this, you remember Peter's response. At that moment, Peter could not bear to hear those words because it violated, it ran contrary to everything he was expecting, to everything that he was hoping for from Messiah. And so in his pride and in his arrogance, he took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him for the revelation that Messiah will suffer and die. See, Peter, in his mind, he had signed up to serve and to follow a Messiah who will immediately begin his reign upon the earth. He didn't sign up to suffer. He didn't sign up to follow a Messiah who will be killed. Then again, Jesus repeated Messiah's humble path in chapter 17, verses 22 and 23. For the second time, Jesus said, as they, or the text says, as they, the twelve, were gathering in Galilee just after the, the transfiguration, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day, and they were greatly distressed. So you see in the first one, the response of Peter is to take Jesus aside and rebuke him. In the second one, it's that the twelve are greatly distressed by what Jesus had said. Now look at the response of the disciples to the third announcement. Do you see it? Because it's not there. This time, no disciple took Jesus aside. The second time, they experienced grief and sorrow at the announcement. But now, as Jesus for the third time announces his upcoming death and resurrection in Jerusalem, the disciples don't do anything. We don't see in the text that they felt anything. 
This time they simply bypass the information in favor of continuing to focus on their aim of status and supremacy and superiority and preeminence over each other. See, you'd think that these 12, after all this time, have begun growing in their spiritual maturity, but it seems as though they are regressing, doesn't it? As immediately after this third announcement of suffering and humiliation, the mother of James and John, along with James and John themselves, approached Jesus not to ask for further clarification on what Jesus has just said, but to ask for the prime seats of honor in his kingdom. Have they learned nothing? Again, hear what Jesus has just told them. See, we are going to Jerusalem. Again, in the previous announcements, this trek to Jerusalem is spoken of as something that is in the future. The Son of Man will go to Jerusalem. The Son of Man must go to Jerusalem. And now we see He is going. We are going. We're in the process of now heading to Jerusalem. It's to Jerusalem that we go. And why? As Luke records, this added detail in chapter 18, verse 31... See, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. And how will that be accomplished? What will take place in Jerusalem? Verse 18, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. Now that phrase, delivered over, it means transferred into the custody of, turned over to, but even more, it means to be betrayed into the hands of. Jesus will be betrayed into the hands of the chief priests and the scribes. This very word is used eight times in chapter 26, all in reference to the betrayal of Judas. Two examples being 26 verses 14 to 16, are found in 26 verses 14 to 16. There we read this. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? That's the word. And they paid him 30 pieces of silver, and from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. Same word, betray. The word used for deliver and betray here is the same word. The Son of Man will be betrayed over to the chief priests. And these chief priests, guess what what they're going to do? They're going to condemn him to death, as it says in the text. Meaning, they will declare him guilty. They will pronounce upon him the punitive sentence of execution. And here we come to some new, as of yet, unrevealed information in these announcements of Jesus. That the chief priests and the scribes, because they could not implement, effect, or discharge their desire for capital punishment, because the Romans forbade them from doing so, they will, according to chapter, verse 19, deliver him over to the Gentiles. You see that? They will deliver him over to the Gentiles. In chapter 16, we see that it is the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. In, in the second announcement, we see that he'll be delivered into the hands of men. And here, for the first time, he is, says to them, he said to them, uh, he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. Betrayed by the chief priests, to the chief priests, and delivered over to the Gentiles. You see, the Jewish peoples at this moment, in the ultimate insult, will deliver their Messiah over to the Gentiles so that they will put him to death. Those, the ungodly, 
Those who are, according to Romans 1.21, futile in their thinking. Those possessing foolish, darkened hearts. Those who suppressed the knowledge of the truth of God and exchanged, it for the, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and animals and creeping things, according to Romans 1.23. It is to them they're going to give or hand Jesus over. The chief priests and scribes will deliver Christ over to the Gentiles who are characterized again in Romans 1 as those who dishonor their bodies among themselves, as those who have been given up by God to dishonorable passions, as those who have, been, those who have given up natural, those men who have given up natural relations with women and are consumed with passion for one another, those that the text tells us are given to a debased mind, those who are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice, those who, according to Romans 1.25, <coughs> exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creation rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. It is to these that the Jewish peoples will hand over and deliver their own Messiah. And these Gentiles, in turn, will mock and flog and ultimately crucify the Christ, the Son of the living God. These Gentiles will mock Him, meaning they will make sport of Him, ridicule Him, laugh at Him, make fun of Him, and spit upon Him for their own sinful pleasure. You see, this is right here the tough men in the world using their status. Those who have sought positions of preeminence and gained those positions, look at how they treat the true servant. They try to embarrass and shame the one for whom and through whom all things exist. The one who is life itself. The one who allows them and gives them the breath of life that they are going to breathe while they flog and mock and crucify him. They will flog him, meaning they will severely whip and scourge him, and then they will crucify him, meaning they will execute him by fastening him to a cross, which was one of the, which was the cruelest form of punishment that Rome had ever devised. One Roman historian named Cicero called it a cruel and disgusting penalty. This is also new information in the announcements. In the previous announcements of his death, Jesus hadn't clarified the mode by which he would die. But here, he, was, he declares clearly that he will die by crucifixion. If the twelve had been listening to what Jesus had just said right here, there would have been a tremendous shock among them. Because in Jewish thought, this crucifixion is a sign of God's curse. As God revealed to Moses in Deuteronomy 21, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. And the Apostle Paul will quote this in Galatians 3.13 when he says these most wonderful words, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So you see the picture that Jesus is painting for the twelve here, right? It's one of pain. It's one of betrayal. It's one of injustice and insult and scorn and mockery and humiliation and disgrace. 
The scene eliminates, the scene expels, the scene ought to remove, at least for the time being, any thought of earthly glory and status as a disciple of the great servant, Jesus Christ. How can you listen to what Jesus has just said and then immediately walk to him and say, give me the crown? Now, before we move on from here, I want you to just notice something, because something we must always remember, that when Jesus goes to Jerusalem, Luke tells us that he sets his face toward Jerusalem. It is purposeful. It is intentional. Jesus traveled to Jerusalem. He proceeded of his own accord and headed to Jerusalem as king, not as victim. And as he ascended to the city as the sacrificial lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world, he willingly and in submission to his Father in heaven laid down his life for you and I, that we might live. Jesus said it quite clearly in John chapter 10, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it back up again. See, Jesus went to Jerusalem for this very purpose, to glorify God in securing the salvation of sinners. Jesus said it in John 13, 31, Now is the Son of Man glorified. This is how he sees his work, his Passion Week in Jerusalem. The glorification of the Son and God the Father is glorified in him. Note, I want you to see something. Jesus never, when delivered up, when betrayed, when mocked, when flogged, when crucified, he never cried out, I'm a victim! Y'all are so God-phobic! No, he modeled for us what it means to suffer obediently. As Peter wrote, encouraging believers to follow Christ's example wrote what he wrote in 1 Peter 2.23 when he, Jesus, was reviled he did not revile in return when he suffered he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly see the response of Jesus he didn't revile in return didn't threaten consider the Christian response to suffering in the world today. I hear a lot of reviling and a lot of responding. Jesus entrusted himself to his Father as we also ought to when we are reviled. As we live and move in a world that is hostile and quickly increasing in that hostility to Christ and to all who truly represent him as ambassadors, as those who are out there living as great commissioned people teaching the world to obey everything that Christ has commanded? Look to Jesus. See Jesus as your example when you suffer for doing so, for doing this. Jesus, for the joy set before him, which was the glory of God and the salvation of sinners, endured the cross, despised the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's Hebrews 12, 2. As the Lord said through Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, verse 7, he, that's Jesus, we know, him, we know the he to be Jesus now, was oppressed. You and I might think we're oppressed, but there's only one who's ever been oppressed. Jesus. 
and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. It's a good lesson for us, isn't it? Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that, is, that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Now the question I would ask is why? Why did he remain silent? And here's the answer that ought to inspire and encourage and inflame hope in all of us. He remained silent because his, he knew that his Father in heaven would vindicate him by raising him up on the third day. And Scripture promises the same for you and I. Not on the third day, but the Scripture promises that we too will be vindicated by our Father in heaven when we are raised up on that last day. Scripture tells us that whatever we might endure here on earth now, Jesus is our model for how we respond to it. We, like Jesus, entrust ourselves into the hands of Him who judges all things justly. We, like Jesus, live as those the Father will one day vindicate before the eyes of the world. We live as those that will be like Christ, raised up again with new glorious bodies, and we will hear those most spectacular words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. We live knowing that that is our future if we truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And for that reason, in imitation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we must not, we must never play or act like victims on earth. Why? Because you, if you love the Lord Jesus Christ and are known by Him, you are a victor. We are the only victors on earth. And oh, how terrible it is when the victors copycat the world and act like victims. See, you and I don't use, we don't imitate the strategies of the world. We don't play their games. We always act like Christ in our suffering, in our trials, in our difficulties. This is what Peter was, had in mind when he wrote those familiar words that we all know, 1 Peter 3.15, Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. What is this hope? Well, how is this hope expressed? by our disposition in suffering. That's the point of that letter. When the unsaved sees how a Christian suffers and how different it is from the suffering of the world and the response of the, to, of the world to suffering, when through all of it there is an undeniable hope and confidence in the Lord that leads you and I to respond differently than everybody else, than the world does in the same circumstances. When you and I can lose everything, we can endure shame, we can endure scorn, we can endure humiliation, trial, disease, loss, the agitations and turbulence of the world as those who have fully and completely entrusted ourselves into the hands of the God who judges everything justly. It's then that people will actually ask you about the reason for the hope that is in you. I want you to think about your own life for a second, and I hated asking this question because to my own great shame, the answer for me was no. Have you ever actually had anyone ask you to explain the hope that is in you because you have endured trial and difficulty with such joy, with such a different disposition than the world 
that people just couldn't help it. They had to go to you and say, what is going on with you? If not, what does that say about your, what does that say about my, what does that say about our current approach and, and response to our difficulties? The difficulties and the trials that arise, generally speaking, and the sufferings that we endure or experience for the sake of Christ. See, Jesus knew that he would be raised on the third day. He knew what we ought to know. Death is not the final word. For him or for any who believe in his name, you and I will be raised. The resurrection of Jesus on the third day is the guarantee that you who are in him will also be raised one day. This was made really clear to me yesterday. I was playing some squash, and one of my people that I was playing against uh, at, after one of the points that I got, <laughs> after one of the points, he shook his hand like this, and all of a sudden he ran to the corner. Ouch, ouch, ouch! I said, what's wrong? I shook my hand too hard. <laughs> he heard himself shaking his hand. And as you all are getting older, as we are all getting older, how many of you have hurt yourself sleeping? Come on now. Is anyone in here woke up and you're like, how did I get this pain? I don't know how I got this pain. You got it from laying down. This is where our bodies are going. Oh, to have our 20-year-old bodies again. If you've got a 20-year-old body in this place, enjoy it! But the promise of Scripture is that we're going to be given something far greater. We are going to be given glorified bodies. Bodies in which our, our, the, the physical part of us and the spiritual part of us are no longer in conflict anymore. Bodies with which we will serve the Lord for eternity as vindicated ones. And so we can look ahead in joy, look ahead in hope, and having that joy and having that hope respond differently than everyone else right now. Jesus laid out in announcing for the third time what will take place in Jerusalem. Jesus explains and describes for the twelve his glorious act of service to humanity. And he knows that as he goes through all of this, as he suffers the mockery and he suffers the shame and he suffers the scorn and he suffers the crucifixion, he knows that all of it will lead to his vindication. And so he lays out for them what it means that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. But it seems that as the disciples hear what Jesus is saying, it goes in one ear and right out the other because they are so focused on the establishment of their expected political, earthly, temporal kingdom right then and right there or relatively soon and they're so focused on their place in that kingdom that they overlooked and ignored truths that contradicted their expectations and their desires. Even after Jesus announced for the third time that he would under, what he would undergo in Jerusalem, the disciples continue to argue about their status and prestige. See, they failed 
to grasp the gravity of Christ's pronouncement about Mog being delivered over to the Gentiles for mockery and scorn and flogging and crucifixion. But they did remember what Jesus said in chapter 19, verse 28. Remember when Jesus told them that in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me, meaning the twelve, will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. They're all about that. They appreciated these words, but overlooked or ignored the timing of these thrones. They will only sit on these thrones, according to the text, in the new world. In the new world when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne. They will sit on these thrones in the coming millennial reign of Christ, when he returns to rule from Jerusalem in glory, fulfilling all outstanding promises to Israel. It's then that they will sit on the twelve thrones. But at this moment, during Christ's first coming to earth, he has come to secure for all of us who believe the path to salvation, the forgiveness of sin, eternal life for all who believe, by his perfect life, by his sin-bearing death, and by his resurrection from the dead. Which means Messiah, at his first coming, came to suffer. But the disciples just can't hear this. And so a couple of them, immediately after Jesus speaks to his upcoming experience in Jerusalem, approach Jesus with their mother. The selfish, self-centered disposition and motivation of the disciples are writ large in their response to Christ's pronouncement of his suffering in verse 20. Look at it. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And while it is the mother of James and John that speaks to Jesus, the construction of this text indicates that James and John put their mother up to it. And Jesus doesn't respond to their mother. He responds to them. When he answers her question, he focuses on James and John. Perhaps James and John had told her about the thrones promised in 1928. 19 verse 28. And asked her, can you go talk to Jesus about those thrones? Can you go talk to him about securing those thrones? Can you go talk to him about making sure that we are sitting on the most prominent of those thrones? So she approaches him and she asked him for something. As in, she wanted Jesus to say yes to her request before she asked it. But Jesus doesn't play those types of games. And so he responds by saying, well, what do you want? What is this request that you would like me to approve? What is this that you desire so strongly? The request is in verse 21. She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand, one at your left, in your kingdom. Now, on the one hand, this question actually reveals great faith in that she, along with James and John, assume the facts of his identity as Messiah. They assume that he will indeed institute and found his earthly kingdom, and they'll have a part in it. But on the other hand, it speaks to their as-of-yet uncrucified and undenied desire for self-exaltation. Now notice what they didn't ask. After all they've heard from Jesus over the last few chapters, all the service he's talked about, all the sacrifice, all the humility, James and John do not come to Jesus and say, Jesus, how might we better serve in the vineyard? 
They don't come to him with that question. They don't ask how they might be better followers of Jesus. No, they immediately come to Jesus and ask for the honors. I want to enter the job, this job, but I want to be paid the maximum amount from day one. See, they are, in general, these disciples, rather slow and hesitant to serve, but eager to gain for themselves immediately status and honor. They hope to do as little as possible while gaining for themselves maximal distinction and privilege. Say, he said, she said, in verse 21, meaning grant or command or promise that these two sons of mine are to sit or are to be appointed or installed, that they will take their seats, one at your right hand, right hand meaning the seat of highest honor, and one at your left hand, meaning the seat of second highest honor. Bestow to my boys the highest renown and standing in your kingdom. And in so doing, all those other disciples, you know, the Peters and the Matthews and the Simon the Zealots and the rest of them, all of them, place them all beneath my boys. Now, as he has done throughout, Jesus responds to her question with truth and grace. He responds to this supremely foolish request by saying in verse 22, you don't know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? See, the disciples have no idea, and this is a truth, this is axiomatic for all of us. To receive the crown, Christ will first carry the cross. The same is true for them, the same is true for us. Listen to the Apostle Paul when he writes to Pastor Timothy. This saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, meaning if we suffer, if we withstand suffering with him, we will also reign with him. You see the reality? We die with him. We live with him. We suffer with him. We reign with him. See, the disciples don't grasp this yet. They want to reign, but they aren't prepared to suffer with him. And we, like the disciples, must learn this lesson. Do not focus on the honors without asking the Lord for the grace to bear your cross and walk with Jesus in his suffering. Do not ask for or focus on the honors without asking the Lord for the grace to bear your cross and walk with Jesus in his suffering. James and John didn't understand what they were asking or what they were requesting from Jesus. To reign, you must suffer, which is why Jesus asked them, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Now, the cup here is a metaphor. It's metaphorical for suffering, but more specifically, suffering under the wrath of God. For example, you can read in Isaiah 51, wake yourself, wake yourself, Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. And in Psalm 75, Asaph wrote, In the hand of the Lord there is a cup foaming with wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. 
This cup speaks to the wrath of God. And so Jesus here is telling them he will suffer, and he's giving them a unique insight into what it is that he will suffer. They don't quite grasp it yet. We'll look at it next week. But Christ's sufferings are unique in that he will bear in himself the cup of God's wrath. He will take that cup on our behalf, in our place, as our substitute, and he will drink it down to the very bottom. God's perfect holy wrath will be fully vented upon the Lord Jesus Christ, meaning that for all in Christ, by grace through faith in him, the wrath of God, the penalty of God for your sin is fully dealt with. And so Jesus asks James and John, do you possess the power to suffer as I will? Are you able to endure the suffering that will come for the sake of my name? Because those who are going to sit on the seats of honor in the millennial kingdom will first endure tremendous suffering. Are you prepared, James and John? And look at their response in verse 22. We are able. More naive, arrogant, ignorant, and foolhardy words have never been spoken. We can take it! These two had an inflated sense of their own capacity. They thought they had it in themselves. They had the power to take upon their shoulders far more than they actually at this moment could. And that insufficiency will be made clear in just a few short days when the cup of God's wrath begins to be poured out on the Lord Jesus Christ and where do they all go? Do they stick with him? They all flee. They all run away from the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter, in like manner, had similar moments to James and John when he himself made the bold claim, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And again, in Matthew 26, though they all, the eleven, fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Even if I must die with you, I will never deny you. Only to, before morning comes, curse and swear that he does not even know this man. Apart from the Holy Spirit of God living in you and living in me, we would, like these disciples, flee at every single sign of difficulty and trial. And Jesus, in response to James and John's overestimation of their power and aptitude to drink the cup of suffering, revealed to them that they would indeed suffer. You see it in verse 23. You will drink my cup. Now, make sure that you don't see that as a punishment from the Lord, but that you understand that this is a grace of the Lord. Now, you probably look at me and say, well, that's, a, that's an odd statement. However, if it is true, as we've said, that the path to the crown comes as we suffer with Christ then the trials brought upon us by the Lord for the sake of Christ are a grace from his hand by which we lay hold of that crown. Suffering is something the Lord grants to us. 
As Paul wrote to the Philippian believers in chapter 1, verse 29, he said to them, It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And again, Paul, in his letter to the Philippian believers, wanted to know Christ and the power of his resurrection so deeply in his own life and hoped to share in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, so that by any means he may attain resurrection from the dead. And as he also wrote to the Roman Christians in chapter 8, verses 16 and 17, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You see it? The cross, suffering with Christ, that we may also be glorified with Christ. And so the Lord Jesus reveals here to James and John that they will indeed suffer. They will indeed drink the cup of suffering. They will indeed, for the sake of his name, experience and endure all of these things. And this for the ultimate purpose of seeing them glorified with himself. James would suffer the ultimate sacrifice, that of being the first of the apostles to be martyred. We read it in Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And John would experience a lifetime of hostility and trial for his commitment to Christ, as we read in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in in the tribulation and the kingdom and and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So you've got James, who's killed quite quickly. You've got John, who experiences an entire life of hostility and trial and suffering. And the Apostle Paul will kind of say, I don't know which one of those is better. Is it better for me to depart quickly under great suffering? Or is it better for me to stay? Because that will mean fruitful labor for me. Both of these are suffering with Christ. James lost his life. John was exiled to Patmos. Both drank the cup of suffering, the result of their service to Jesus. They will drink the cup. But, Jesus said in verse 23, to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. So you see here the submission of the Lord Jesus Christ to the will of his Father during his incarnation, during his taking on flesh and dwelling among us. While equal to the Father in essence, in taking on flesh, he took on the form of a servant and subordinated himself to the Father's good will as he lived on earth. And the Father has determined, the Father has prepared the seats at the right hand and at the left hand of Christ in the kingdom of Christ. He has made them ready. He has already determined in advance who will be seated in those positions. The Father has already made all the arrangements for the messianic kingdom, and Christ will not, he does not disclose who will be seated there, perhaps to avoid inflaming an already proud bunch. But eventually, the other ten disciples hear about this interaction. In verse 24, when the others heard of it, they were indignant. They were angry. 
They were resentful. Their pride was wounded. They were jealous and they thought of themselves as wronged by James and John. How could James and John go and do that? So now there's friction and there's division among the twelve because they all want the same thing. They all think they deserve the seats of honors more than the others do. And as a result, here they are, indignant, inflamed by anger by what they see as a slight against them. See, they still haven't learned. They still haven't grasped. They still haven't appreciated what Jesus has been telling them over and over and over again. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus called the disciples to himself. And he is so amazing because I just... He calls them to himself to, to retread the same ground. To remind them of what he has been saying to them over and over again. Guys, forget the games. Leave behind the fight for status and honor in the worldly way. Listen to me. The kingdom of heaven is different. The standard for difference in the kingdom of heaven is different than the standard that the world uses. In fact, it's the exact opposite, as we'll see next week. So we've worked through two major themes here in our text this morning. Two major themes have woven their way through this text. That of humility and that of suffering for the name and sake of Jesus. So first... Have you turned and repented of your sin and humbled yourself like a child, giving up your desire for and pursuit of self-exaltation? If not, Jesus made it clear, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And do you want to know if you've humbled yourself in such a way? I want you to think about your relationships with your fellow brothers and sisters. Are there people with whom you, like the disciples, are indignant? If so, you are like the disciples who at this moment haven't learned what it means to humble yourself like a child. And now I know your flesh will rise up and you'll say, yeah, but you don't know what they did! Or your flesh is rising up and saying, I really hope so-and-so is listening to this. They need to hear this. But forget all that noise. This is about you. This is about your relationship with Jesus Christ. Because no one can obey for you, except for Jesus. No one can obey for you. No one can keep you from obeying Jesus, except for you. And no one is going to lie to you about this more than you. And no one is going to try to justify you in your sin more than you. When you stand before God, no amount of, well, the woman you gave me, which is what Adam tried, or the Christian who insulted me, or fill in the blank, will prevail with the Lord. You will not be judged by what others have said to you and by what others have done to you. You will be judged for how you responded to what others have said and done to you. Did you reveal Christ-like character 
Did you reveal the fruit of a true turning to Christ in repentance and faith? Have you humbled yourself like a child so that you might be great in the kingdom of heaven? Or have you remained, or do you remain, or did you remain indignant, puffed up, proud, and self-exalting? See, the disciples would get it after the resurrection of Christ and the Holy Spirit entered into them. Now all of us here who claim to have the Holy Spirit living in us, will you? The second theme is that of suffering for the sake of Christ. We all want the crown without the cross, don't we? We all hope to glide through life with little to no pain or trial, but to serve Christ is to suffer with Him. The student is not greater than the master, And if the Master, our Lord Jesus Christ, suffered as he did at the hands of wicked, sinful men, what makes you think that you won't? What makes me think that I won't? And if you think about it, the Christian, the citizen of the kingdom, ought to possess a completely different view of suffering than the child of the world. Now, do not hear me kidding you in any way. Let's not kid ourselves. Suffering is painful. Not saying that it's not. It's difficult. It's hard. But even so, as Scripture makes clear, it is something that God grants to us graciously for our ultimate good. Peter wrote that suffering produces a tested genuineness of faith which is more precious than gold. And Jesus told us, His children, in the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad! For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And these same disciples who at this moment were so opposed to suffering and so focused on exaltation, eventually they changed their tune as well. In Acts 5, after being arrested and imprisoned and beaten by the jealous Sadducees and religious leaders, this is what the disciples did. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. Wow. Do you see the upside-down, opposite kind of nature of the kingdom in contrast to the world? In the kingdom, it would seem down is up. Humility is the path to exaltation. The cross is the path to the crown. And it is this radical difference between the disciples post-Pentecost and the world they lived in that led to such great expansions of the church as souls were saved by the thousands day by day by day. These disciples did as Jesus did. They imitated Jesus and it was a humongously successful witness. As Peter will write in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, this is the same guy who ran. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. In other words, do what Jesus did. 
They truly became alternatives to the world, those in whom the hope of Christ was clearly seen in their response to suffering and their dedication to humble, childlike status. Oh, that we might recapture these kingdom values, that we might focus on humility rather than self-exaltation, that we might rejoice in hope as we suffer for the sake of Christ rather than cry out in complaint and ascribe to ourselves the status of victim rather than victor on our way to our eternal home. Oh, that we might be the most excellent representative of the kingdom values as we sojourn through this world on our way to the eternal city whose builder and architect is God. Children of Christ, you saints in the Lord, let us all hear God's word this morning. Let us all humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt us. And let us suffer well for his sake, rejoicing in the name and always being prepared to give an answer for the hope that is in us. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you, we praise you, we honor you. Lord Jesus, thank you for revealing to us the nature of the values of the, values of the kingdom. Because as we live in this world, we can get so backwards, thinking that the world's ways are the right ways. And then you reveal to us just how opposite the values of the kingdom are to those of the world. So we pray that you, by your Spirit who lives in us, would reveal to us and press upon us the fact that humility is the kingdom value over self-exaltation and that suffering is the way to the crown. And I pray that you would help us to rejoice as we suffer well for your name. And I pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen.